In the Bible study this morning, we talked about the importance of the Gospels. Uh, you know, I've, I've referenced sometimes it seems like, at least in my life, and I think I'm not unique in this, that as we start thinking about studying God's Word, as we start thinking about growing in our knowledge, our understanding, and our depth, we, we often find our focus shifting to what we think maybe are the more difficult Scriptures. Uh, I was talking to Brother Rick earlier, and even in the Old Testament, I tend to uh, to shy away from looking at the historical books because in some part of my mind, I think I kind of already understand the history of the world as it's laid out in the Old Testament Scripture. I understand the kings of Israel and of Judah, and and my tendency is to spend my time looking at what for me are harder texts, like the prophecy of Ezekiel, for instance, which is a book that always seems to elude me in its depth and nuance But that's a danger to do that, and in the New Testament, what we addressed this morning was the danger of spending all of our time and attention in the epistles of Paul or of John or of Peter, the book of Hebrews, the the book of James, the Acts of the Apostle. All of these are the Word of God. They all warrant our attention. But they're all built upon and based upon the person of Jesus Christ. And if you want to find Jesus Christ most clearly illustrated, if you want to see God most clearly revealed, the source of that's going to be found in the books that we call the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. This came very clear to me about six years ago. I had just begun pastoring a church in South Georgia and the Lord just really convicted me of my need to go back to the beginning, to spend time in the Gospels, to read, to study the Gospels. And that resulted in about a two and a half year journey with the church there in Georgia through the Gospel of Luke. And we went verse by verse through the entire book. And for me, that was that was really life changing. It was very important, very essential because uh, it really did reconnect in a lot of ways my heart to the Lord uh, in a way that I needed. In the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. It's recorded in verse 16. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. You know, this scripture from Isaiah's prophecy really, in a nutshell, defines or describes the ministry of Jesus Christ. He was telling the truth. He read the scripture and he said, Today is this Scripture fulfilled in your ears. And that should have been a ground for rejoicing. Not only was the prophecy that the Lord had given so many years before fulfilled, come to pass, testifying of the accuracy, the authenticity of the prophecy, but beyond that, Jesus was saying, you, you are having sight given back to you who are blind. You are being set at liberty 
who are bruised. And today is the acceptable year of the Lord. However, their response was not what you would expect. He said, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears and all bearing witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And then they said, is not this Joseph's son? They began to question, to question the accuracy of his word, to question the authority with which he spoke, to question the reality. Could this be the savior? Don't we know him? Didn't we see him grow up here? Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, and to a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elysius, or Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Well, when they heard those words, they were filled with wrath. They rose up, they thrust him out of the city, they led him to a brow of a hill where they thought they were going to cast him off of a cliff and kill him. They didn't like what Jesus had to say. This is one of many gospel texts that illustrate the person of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ for those people who many would look down on and think perhaps he wasn't come to save. As human beings, our natural assumption is that people like us are the people who are most valuable. We tend to like to stick to our own, to care for those who are most like us. And we tend to expect God to do the same without giving much thought as to what kind of a person God may be. You know, we go back to the garden and with Eve, we think, well, I'd like to be like God and surely God must be like me. Romans chapter one tells us that's what man by nature does. He creates a God who is like unto himself, but we're not the creator of God. God is the creator of man. And mankind, however disparate their appearance may be, however different their culture, their background, their ethnicity, their race, we're all created in some sense in the image of God. In the image of God created he man. And Jesus Christ came not just for those of the city of Nazareth, or of Bethlehem where he was born, not just for those who had the the ethnic heritage of the Jews, but he came to his people of every nation, every kindred, every tongue, and every people. And some say, well, yeah, you get that from other New Testament scripture. That message isn't found in the gospel. But we just read a text where he refers back to Old Testament scripture. He says, even in a time when God's manifest covenant was only with the Jews, God sent his prophet to someone who was not a Jew. And in a time when God's only manifest love was toward the Jews, he sent a prophet of Israel to heal a leper of an enemy state, Naaman, a general of the Syrians. What do we do with this? 
Well, this isn't the only time Jesus made reference to that. We're all familiar with uh, John chapter 10, where Jesus says, Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring. Speaking of the need for evangelism outside of the Jewish state, promoting evangelism beyond the Jews. You see, this wasn't a new idea in the book of Acts when Peter was shown a sheet let down from heaven and sent to preach to a Gentile. This wasn't a new idea or new concept when the church expanded out of Jerusalem into into Samaria and then into Antioch and then into all the earth. This was not a new idea. So the Gospels tell us about Jesus' ministry. They tell us about Jesus' work. One of the things we see throughout the Gospel record of Jesus is that he came unto his own, and as John said, his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. He came to his own, his own received him not. Wherever Jesus went, no matter what miracles he performed and what words of wisdom and of glory and of power and of promise he spoke, he was always met by the Jewish people with skepticism, with questions. And much of the record of Jesus' ministry is exactly that. Jesus will preach a message that is a message of hope, a message of love, a message of joy, And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the lawyers will immediately approach him. And they'll say, well, what about this? How are you going to answer that? What do you mean, Jesus? You remember the young man came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the scripture say? What does the law say? Well, it says to love the Lord with all my heart and my neighbor as myself. Jesus says, that's the law in a nutshell. It's all summed up in these two. He says, yeah, well, who is my neighbor? Let's define it a little bit. They're asking questions, sometimes trying to stump him, sometimes trying to understand after a human understanding. In that case, Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. A man like you, a Jew, is attacked by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. And the most esteemed Pharisees, the most esteemed law-abiding citizens of your land came by and saw him on the side of the road. And they said, well, this man's dying, and if I touch him, I'm going to become unclean. So the priest walks by, the Levite walks by, and they don't render aid to this injured, this wounded, this hurting soul. And then a Samaritan, a man despised, a man from outside the fold walks by and sees a man hurting And he renders aid. He doctors, he cares for, he takes to a hotel, he puts him in a place of care and leaves money to pay for his care. Jesus says, which of these three was a neighbor to this man in need? He changed their understanding of the law by the words that he spoke and it took people out of their comfort zone. But the questions were always asked, could this really be the one? Is this really the Messiah? Some, like the apostles, Peter being the example in Matthew 16, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, with absolute confidence. Of course, then Jesus says, well, you know what? You're right. And I'm going to build my rock upon this revelation, this truth. And I'm going to build the church. And you, you're going to have authority in that church by the word of God. And the church is going to stand forever. And death is not going to destroy the church. 
And it's a good thing because I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be killed. And that great testimony of this believer, Peter, turns to resistance. Be it far from you. Be it not so unto you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. So turning to Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. This is an unusual request. Jesus has been traveling about Judea and Israel. He's been preaching the gospel and he's been healing the sick and he's been casting out devils. He's been doing miraculous works. And here's a man who is not of the household of Israel who comes to him and says, my servant, who obviously he cared about a great deal, is sick. He's crippled. He's in pain. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Again, it's a normal request in those days. Jesus was known as the healer. They knew him as the healer. This centurion comes and says, Lord, my servant is sick. And Jesus understands the request. The man wants his servant to be healed. He says, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Now, this is unusual. This is not a request that's been made before. Up to this time, people have brought those who are injured, those who are disabled, those who are sick to Jesus, and he's healed them. Or Jesus has gone to those who are sick or in need, and he's healed them. But here this man, not of Israel, comes to Jesus and says, I've got a sick one at home, but I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I wouldn't ask you to go out of your way and it's not good for you to come to my house. There's a lot of possible reasons for that, but the fact is, he says, it's not good for you to come. But you don't need to come, Lord. Just speak the word and he'll be healed. Just say the word. Well, what's the basis for that? He says, I understand something about authority. This man is a Roman soldier, not just a soldier. He's a a soldier who is in charge. He's an officer with at least a 100, possibly as many as 500 men under his command. He's a man of wealth and privilege. He has a house. He has servants and people who care for him. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. He says, I know something about authority. And that's something that's often missed in professions of faith in Jesus Christ. And that was missed by most of these Jews, even the believing Jews. Notice how the apostles themselves, time and again while following Jesus would interject when Jesus would give a command and they would give their own idea about it. One example is the one we just gave of Peter. Be it not so to you, Lord. No, 
We're not going to allow it. I won't allow it. Peter reveals that again when he pulls out his sword to fight against those who have come to arrest Jesus in the garden. Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. He repairs the damage to the high priest's servant's ear. There was a lot of confusion about authority. In the Jewish society, the authority structure was pretty simple. You were to follow the law with strict adherence, and you were to follow the interpretation of the law as given by the priests and the, the, the religious leaders of the day, and whatever they said went. But there was an understanding that the average person was not going to be able to keep the law and was therefore going to be a sinner and was going to be lost. And that's a lot of what Jesus came to challenge. But their understanding of absolute authority and real authority was lost. They didn't see God as being sovereign and they didn't see God's ministers as speaking words of authority. In fact, that's why in in the Gospel of John, those who were sent to arrest Jesus came away without touching him and when they were asked, they said, never man spake like this man. Why? Because he spake as one having authority. Well, this centurion says, I believe in you. I believe that you are a prophet. I believe that you are a healer. I believe you're a man sent from God. All of that's implied in his request. And believing that, there was some application of that belief. He says, I know about authority structure. I am a man under authority. I have people above me. There are generals that I report to. There's an emperor that I report to. And whatever they say, I do. And I have people under my authority. And if I say to my servant, go, he goes. And if I say, come, he comes. And if I say, go do this, he does what I tell him to. And he says, my belief in you is such that I know you don't have to come to my servant to heal him. All you have to do is speak the word. Why? Because you have authority. You, you're God. And this understanding was something that Jesus marveled at. Look at what Jesus says. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith No, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. This is almost a unique experience in Jesus' ministry. Here's a man who came to him with such faith, with such belief. He didn't say the words, I believe you're the Son of God. He didn't say the words, I believe you're God. But what he said was, you don't need to come to my house to change the life of my servant. If you have the power to heal, you have the power to heal right now from right here. Because you have authority, you can exercise that authority. And there's no one who can challenge it. This is at a time in Jesus' ministry where every word that he spoke was being challenged by the people who should believe. And what's Jesus' answer? First, he marvels. He marvels. He marvels at the words that this man spoke, at the understanding this man had. He marvels 
perhaps that this man had the boldness to speak those words. But then he marvels that this faith, this faith would exist outside of Israel. And he says this is typical of what you're going to experience in the church in your lifetime. Notice he says, many shall come from the east and west. That is outside of the household of Israel. They'll come and they'll sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. They will be my people as surely as you are my people. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. The children of the kingdom will be cast out. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, he says, go thy way. You have what you've requested. Your servant will be healed. And he was healed that selfsame hour. This experience is or should be instructive to us. How often do we find ourselves questioning God's word? Questioning his authority, questioning his ability, making demands on him for how he must work. The Jews over and over again said to the Lord, give us a sign, give us a sign. In fact, later in that same chapter, I think it is, they do exactly that. No, it's not that chapter, it's later on. It's in the 16th chapter, the beginning of the chapter. The Pharisees with the Sadducees came tempting, desiring he would show them a sign from heaven. He said, you're able to see the signs of the weather. You're able to interpret the physical signs that you see, but you can't understand the signs of the times. You can't see me standing here before. You can't believe on me, really with the faith that this centurion had. A native belief that if God is God, God can do what he wants to. That's really what it amounts to. How many professing Christians don't believe that God is able to do the work that he's promised he will do? How many of us spend our lives trying to do God's work for him? Thinking we have a better way. How many times are we faced with the word of Scripture which challenges our own life and our own actions and we say, I want to serve God, but I'm going to do it on my terms. I'm going to serve Him my way. And because my heart's in the right place, the result's going to be good. Well, the Scripture's full of examples of that. You remember when God called Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees and He said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. You're going to have a child and that child is going to be a blessing to the whole world. And Abraham said, well, the only problem there is I'm an old man and my wife is an old woman and she's barren and she's never had a child. So years go by and the promise of God stands and he reiterates it twice more. And finally, Sarah says, Abram, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to get some help. I've got a servant. I've got a servant girl and she'll have the child and a child born in your house. That'll be your child and God's word will be fulfilled. Well, that's one of many over and over the scriptures tell us of people who tried to serve God on their terms, do it their way. You remember when King Saul was king over Israel and Samuel said, go to battle against the enemy, but wait to engage in the battle until I come and offer a sacrifice unto the Lord. So Saul waited and he waited and he waited. And the time that Samuel was supposed to have come, didn't he didn't appear. 
And Saul finally said, you know what? I've seen a lot of sacrifices. I know how it's done. I'll sacrifice to the Lord and we'll go into battle. And he did that. And for that, he lost his throne. He lost his kingdom. He lost his house. He lost his everything. When we're confronted with God's word, we ought to believe it. Why? Because he is God and his way is the right way, even if we don't understand it. And these Jews stumbled at that. They struggled at it. The centurion had no problem with it. Lord, my servant is sick of a palsy. He's tormented. He needs help. Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. I'll, I'll heal him. He says, don't come, Lord. I'm not worthy that you should come. I don't need you to come. Lord, I know you have authority. I know you can speak the word and he'll be healed and I'll be on my way. So Jesus detains him long enough to upbraid the Jews. And then Jesus speaks the word and the servant is healed. Later on in Matthew's account in chapter 15, Jesus gives some strong words to the Pharisees. He speaks a parable they don't understand. He gives explanation. He says, your works matter. Your heart matters. Your service to God is not just an outward thing, but an inward thing. And then he left. Verse 21, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. Here's another non-Israelite, a woman of Canaan. She comes to Jesus as he's traveling through the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, outside of his homeland, outside of where he would be expected to be. Kind of like in John chapter 4 when it begins, he must needs go through Samaria. Not the most direct route, but the route he must needs go through. He's traveling through the coast and this woman comes to him and cries out to him. Begging mercy. Have mercy on me. Calling him Lord. Calling him son of David, a title which can only refer to the coming Messiah. A testimony of faith. A plea for mercy. But he answered her not a word. He ignores this woman's plea. How uncharacteristic, right? Not what you'd expect of the Savior. Jesus just keeps on walking. The woman is persistent. She doesn't give up. His disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. The disciples come. Make her be quiet. Send her away. If you're not going to heal her, then send her away, Lord. And Jesus answers them and says to them, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What kind of statement of that is that? Earlier, he's made prophecy. He said many will come from the east and the west. Well, here's a woman from the west. She's come. 
Jesus says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. So he spoke to his disciples. He said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She takes that opportunity hearing him speak. She comes to him. She bows down before him. She worships him. And she says, help me. Now Jesus turns his attention to her. Again, it seems uncharacteristic to us. But he answered and said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. If you missed it, he just called this woman who's worshiping him a dog. Maybe not the way you think of the Savior, but it should be. This woman doesn't argue. She doesn't become offended. She doesn't become incensed. He says it's not right to take my children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, truth, Lord. Every word he speaks is true. And the faithful believe it. He's just insulted this woman. He's just called her a dog. He's just said she's not worthy of the bread that he brings from heaven. And she said, truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She doesn't question him in the way the Pharisees do. She doesn't call him a liar. She takes his word as truth. And she says, Lord, I am a dog. I am not one of the manifest children of Israel. But Lord, dogs need to eat too. And dogs eat crumbs. They eat the leftovers. They eat the scraps. And their masters feed them the scraps. The dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Here's another unusual instance in Jesus' ministry, an unusual miracle. Another miracle performed of healing without his personal contact with the patient, the victim the one that he's being called upon to heal. Another instance where faith is displayed that's greater than the faith of all the believers in Israel. And where Jesus behaves in a way that seems uncharacteristic or outside of what our expectation would be. Notice how faith responds to Jesus Christ in both of these instances. The centurion boldly comes before Christ requesting aid. But then equally boldly he asserts his own unworthiness, his own inadequacy, his own lack of desert. And then this woman comes to Jesus as he journeys through her land, a land not his own, 
and she begins begging for mercy. What is mercy? By definition, it's undeserved favor. She doesn't come pleading her dessert. She doesn't come with gifts saying, I'll pay you for it. She's no Simon Magus here asking for miracles or miracle working power. No, she's asking for deliverance, begging for salvation, not on the basis of her worth or her value or what she has to offer. And this is typical of everyone who comes to Jesus Christ. If you come to Jesus Christ pleading your, your family heritage, pleading your knowledge, your ability, or what you have to offer, then you have more in common with the Pharisees than you have with this woman or this centurion. She comes pleading for mercy. And she comes begging mercy and Jesus turns her away. He ignores the plea at first. And then when she finally communicates with him and receives a response, the response that he gives is one of conviction. It's not right for me to give my best to dogs. When the gospel touches the heart of his children, it comes with powerful conviction. And it may be that when you hear the gospel preached and it convicts you right now, there may be some dissuasion in it. Some part of you that wants to turn aside and say, I don't need to be treated this way. I don't need to hear those things about myself. I'm fine with talking about the problems in this world and the sin that abounds in this world and what's going on out there. But I'm doing a lot better than they are and I certainly don't need to hear about my sins in here. The woman at the well of Samaria. Jesus went there on purpose. She comes to the well. He engages her in conversation. He asks her about her husband. She says, well, I've had five husbands. The one I've got now. Or she she says, I don't, I have no husband rather. He says, you've said, well, you had five husbands. The one you've got now is not your husband. What does he do? He hits her with her sin. He hits her with her shame. He convicts her. He confronts her. Does she turn away? She says, you must be a prophet. This woman, he says, you're a dog. She says, Lord, you're right. I'm a dog. Do you feel that conviction? Do you feel that sin, that reality? You deserve nothing from his hand. Yet do you have the boldness to come anyway? To beg for mercy at his door, to beg for healing, to beg for help. To confess your unworthiness as both of these individuals did. These are set forth in the scripture as typical of what real faith is. This is the kind of faith that receives deliverance. And it does in both of these cases. She pleads with him, Lord, you're right. I deserve nothing, but I've got to have 
eat food or I'll die. Jesus speaks in John chapter 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, no man can come to the Father but by me. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way. And Jesus Christ, my friends, is the only way. This woman comes to him pleading, have mercy upon me, O Lord. The Lord rejects her. She says, I know I deserve nothing, but I've got to live. I've got to eat. Give me something or I die. And Jesus answers, great is thy faith. This is great faith. The centurion, he says, I haven't seen faith like this. No, not in Israel. And then remember, Jesus speaks to his 12 disciples and the others assembled around him. And he says, if you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, then you could do wonders beyond your imagination. You could say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it would happen. What is true faith in this context? It's believing God's word. It's believing his promises. It's believing in his authority. And it's getting outside of our comfortable norms. And that's what we should see when we approach the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Jesus was holy. He was righteous. He came in accordance with the Scriptures. Yet He came to His own and they received Him not. Why didn't they receive Him? Because they were looking to receive Him on their terms. And all too often in our lives, we want to receive Jesus Christ and His Word on our own terms. We want to build our own carefully constructed boxes to keep His authority in. To limit His power and to limit the impact that His Word has on our lives. But when Jesus came preaching His Gospel, He transformed the lives of the people He touched and He transformed a society. It was the end of the Jewish society when Jesus Christ came. Why? Because he came preaching truth. Declaring a God of power. Declaring a God whose sovereignty was beyond question. Declaring salvation. Not by works, but by grace. Declaring salvation, not for the righteous, but for sinners. Declaring His power. His power to heal the sick. To give sight to the blind. Speech to the dumb. Hearing to the deaf. Life to the dead. And salvation to sinners. This was an offensive doctrine. It was a doctrine that was rejected by many. But those who received it, those who believed it, though they continued to struggle, as we already talked about Peter, though they struggled with fully grasping it, though they struggled with fully understanding its implication, 
though they struggled with the changing world around them and all that it meant, they held fast to Jesus Christ. And that's why his words recorded. As we talked about earlier today, that's why we have the record of these Gospels. Four different accounts telling us who Jesus is, what he did, what he said, and how the Old Testament Scripture was applied by the one who wrote it rather than by the commentators who twisted it. And Jesus made enemies. He said in Matthew's Gospel, I've come to set parents against their children, neighbors against neighbors, family against family. I don't come to bring peace, but a sword. And that's hard for us to realize or accept. But that disquietedness comes when the gospel challenges our expectations and our norms. It's interesting how there was greater resistance initially to the gospel from the Jewish people who should have believed than there was from these who were outside of the household of Israel. Jesus said, I haven't seen such great faith. Again, the greatest testimony of faith in all of Scripture, some might argue, was found when Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't care what all these others say, I believe you're the Christ. But then he belied that very profession a few verses later. This centurion says, I don't know much. I don't know much about perhaps the Old Testament law. I don't know much perhaps about what it is to be a Jew. I don't know much about anything except I know this. I know authority. And I know that you are one who has authority. And you speak and things happen. If we could just lay hold of that truth, if we could grasp that truth and then take God's word seriously, so many problems in our lives would be resolved. So many difficulties in our walk of faith would be resolved if we would simply exercise our faith to trust him and take him at his word. God's sovereignty is proclaimed throughout the scripture. It's proclaimed in the day-to-day life of the Savior. It's proclaimed throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And it's clearly described throughout the New Testament scripture. But then we have the testimony of our very experience. It's one thing to look at these examples in scripture. It's another to consider our own experience and see how God has worked in our own lives in a similar manner. Now, if you can't look to your experience and see how God has spoken and things have happened, if you can't look to your own experience and see how you went to Christ proclaiming your unworthiness and begging His mercy and persisting in that begging until you received His mercy, His grace, then it's not too late to go to Him in that way. Lay down your your works and your promises and your negotiations. Lay down your prayer that says, Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do that. Or Lord, I'll do this so that you will do that. And instead, come to him like this woman did. Lord, have mercy. Lord, I am unworthy. 
I'm unworthy for you from for you to come near me, as the centurion says. But Lord, speak the word, and there will be change. Speak the word, and there will be healing. Come to him like that, and start building that experience. Jesus' final words to his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion were what? Promises of the power that they would have to go to God in his name, asking, and they would receive. The example of scripture is clear, but the examples in our own lives will abound as we begin to practice this kind of humility, this kind of trust, and begin to experience in a real way, the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives on a daily basis. The scripture testifies not just that Jesus lived, not just that Jesus did these things, but that Jesus is alive forevermore, that he sits on his throne, that he reigns over all things. And that means the same authority that he had then is the authority that is accessible today. So go to him in prayer. Go to him believing and exalt his name in communication with all those around you, declaring that he is a God of power, a God of grace, a God of mercy, and lay hold upon his word and learn more about him. Read these stories and recognize they're not stories, but they're true because he's true and his word is truth. And his word is our only hope. Our only hope for salvation. Our only hope for living today, tomorrow, and the next day. And Jesus Christ is near to all those who call upon him. This example of this woman of Sidon, this centurion of Caesarea, they're experiences we can lay hold on in our own life. Because what are we other than sinners? Not of the house of Israel. Not having anything to plead. Except one thing. And that is our faith in Jesus Christ, which we trust is an evidence of his life in us. Thank you for your time and your attention, your prayer this morning. I pray the Lord will, will bless us through his word and will give us... Lots to meditate on as we seek to apply it in our lives.